You're listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Backstage at Lyric features in-depth interviews with singers, conductors, and creative talents at one of the world's great opera companies. For additional podcast interviews, subscribe to our RSS feed or visit us online at lyricopera.org. Soprano Elsa Vandenhever, contralto Sonia Prina, conductor Harry Bickett, and director Francisco Negrin are backstage at Lyric. Thank you for downloading this episode of Backstage at Lyric. I'm Roger Pines of Lyric Opera of Chicago. We'll be playing an audio transcript of the Lyric Opera Discovery Series session for Handel's Rinaldo, which we're currently presenting in its Lyric stage premiere. For those of you who may not be aware of the Discovery Series, it's panel discussions featuring singers, conductors, directors, and opera experts. We do one session per opera, and they usually take place a few days prior to the opening of each production. The Discovery Series is open to the public, and it's a great way to get up close and personal with our artists. You can check out our website at lyricopera.org for dates, tickets, and complete Discovery Series information. We include all the Discovery Series sessions as part of the Backstage at Lyric podcast. And now, on to the Discovery Series panel featuring Elsa Vandenhever, Sonia Prina, Harry Bickett, and Francisco Negrin. I'm your host for this session, and I hope you enjoy it. Well, the two singers on our panel are both making their Lyric debuts in this production. Of singing Armida is the South African soprano Elsa Vandenhever. Among the highlights of her current season are Don Giovanni in Hamburg, Alcina in Bordeaux, and Beethoven's Missa Solemnis with the Berlin Philharmonic. She's a member of the resident company at the Frankfurt Opera, where she has starred as heroines of Mozart, Donizetti, Verdi, Wagner, Puccini, and Offenbach. She's also appeared in major roles in Munich, Vienna, Paris, Dallas, and in San Francisco, where she is an alumna of the Merilla and Adler Fellowship programs. Among her concert appearances has been Mahler's Symphony No. 8 with Michael Tilson Thomas and the San Francisco Symphony, which won three Grammy Awards for its CD. Um, our Gofredo is Italian contralto Sonia Prina. The highlights of her current season include a lot of handle, including the aforementioned Bordeaux Alcina, also Alci, uh, Aci Galatea e Polifemo in Brussels, Giulia Cesare in Bremen, and Xerxes in San Francisco. Her close association with Handel includes Rinaldo at La Scala, Glyndebourne in the Royal Albert Hall, Orlando in Sydney and Ravenna, Tamerlano in Munich, Amadigi in Naples, and Giulio Cesare in Lille and Genoa. Handel's also brought her to the major companies of Houston, Paris, and Barcelona. She's been very successful in operas of Monteverdi, Vivaldi, Mozart, and Rossini in venues including La Scala, the Salzburg Festival, Turin's Teatro Reggio, and the Châtelet in Paris. Our conductor, Harry Bickett, has previously been with us for Hercules, Orpheus, and Eurydice, and Partenope. This season, he returned to the Met to lead another Handel work, Rodolinda, with Renee Fleming. The season also includes that same Alcina in Bordeaux and an extensive performance schedule with the English Concert, the celebrated early original instrument ensemble of which he is artistic director. Besides Rinaldo in Munich, Handel's also brought him triumphs at Covent Garden, Glyndebourne, English National Opera, Santa Fe, and Germany's Handel Festival. His operatic repertoire extends from the Coronation of Popea to A Midsummer Night's Dream, both of which he's conducted in Barcelona. He's also appeared with the major orchestras of Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, Rotterdam, Israel, and Munich. And finally, our director, Francisco Negrin, debuted at Lyric with Partenope and will return to us next season for Verter, which he directed last season in San Francisco. He'd, he's developed a close association with the Royal Danish Opera, which released his Giulio Cesare production on DVD. His varied repertoire has included other Handel operas in major houses internationally, among them Rinaldo at New York City Opera and Orlando, which received two Olivier Award nominations at Covent Garden. He's directed such rarely heard works as Martini Soler's The Tree of Diana in Barcelona and Madrid, Leonora, which is the uh, original version of Beethoven's Fidelio in Bologna, and Debussy's The Fall of the House of Usher in London. Later this season, he'll be at the Opera de Monte Carlo for Macbeth. So please join me in welcoming to the Discovery Series Elsa Vandenhever, Sonia Prina, Harry Bickett, and Francisco Negri. Okay. 
Now, this is an opera where I think we really do need a handy-dandy synopsis. We have not done it in so many years, so here we go. Um, and Francisco, forgive me, but I'm going to give the traditional synopsis, and then as we go through the session, we can uh, talk about what the departures that this production will be making. But for now, here it is in 60 seconds or less. During the First Crusade, the Christian army led by Gofredo is attacking Jerusalem, which is ruled by Argante, the Saracen king. Argante's ally is the sorceress Armida, the queen of Damascus. The noble knight Rinaldo, who loves Gofredo's daughter Almirena, is distraught when she's abducted by Armida. Gofredo's brother Eustatio advises him to go with Rinaldo to consult a sage who could help them defeat Armida. In Armida's magic garden, Argante woos Almirena, who rejects him. Meanwhile, Rinaldo is captured and brought to Armida, who proclaims her passion for him. He rejects her, but then she transforms herself into Almirena. When he realizes what she's done, he's outraged. The sage reveals to Gofredo, Gofredo and Eustatio that Rinaldo and Almirena are Armida's prisoners. The brothers' attempt at rescue uh, is initially unsuccessful, but they're eventually, the, everyone, how do I say this? The, the castle disappears, and all the good guys are reunited. She, um, Armida attempts to murder Almirena, but when Rinaldo attacks her, she vanishes. Argante unites again with Armida. And the two of them, the forces of evil, um, are conquered by Gofredo's forces, the forces of good, and Almirena is finally happily reunited in marriage with Rinaldo. Mm. Now... There'll I, be questions now. Yes. <laughs> I am not making this up, I assure you. That is the story. All right. So I think the first question should be, okay... Um, we have done in this company Samson, Orlando, Xerxes, Alcina, Partenope, Julius Caesar, and Hercules. Um, so with that in mind, what is it about this piece that separates it from those and gives it its own very specific character and its color, what, what Giuseppe Verdi would have called its tinta, for lack of a better word? How does it sort of stand out? Anyone? Um, I would say for a lack of a coherent plot is, is, is number one. Um, because uh, Handel, you know, he wrote the piece in under two weeks. He was basically thrown together because he's had such a big hit in, uh, with Agrippina in Venice. And they said, I don't care what you do, just come to London and give us a hit. So he came to London. Uh, this guy, Aaron Hill got hold of the, the Jerusalem Liberata story and said, we can make something out of this. Got his scissors out, cut a few pages, said that, 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 that. Handel used a lot of his material, the big hits from Agrippina, the ones that he knew really worked, and a few numbers from uh, other uh, cantatas he'd written earlier on in his career while he was in Italy. No one, of course, pre the days of radio, internet, anything else, no one would know that these pieces were basically being recycled. recycled. Mm. <laughs> And um, he had a big hit. But also you have to remember there wasn't a great tradition of opera as a kind of coherent form in London at the time. Um, you look at uh, London sort of ballad operas, the masks of Purcell uh, don't really have a story. They have characters and their historical figures, but they don't really have a coherent plot. In Germany, where Handel had been before the Singspiel, you know, a lot of those early Singspiels don't really have a coherent plot. Um, and the other thing you have to remember is that this was the first Italian opera in London. And in fact, it caused a lot of outrage. It was hugely popular with the audience. The critics absolutely hated it and were, were, were very vicious about it, mainly because they felt that the, the, the great tradition of English opera, uh, opera in English at least, was being uh, taken over by this terrible um, uh, art form. And in fact, it wasn't a very good example of what Italian opera could have been when you consider what a brilliant libretto Agrippina is and how it actually came out of the great, great librettos of Monteverdi, which were so great that actually they could stand on their own as plays, which is not something I'd like to see happen to Ronaldo. <laughs> um, anyone else want to comment on what makes this piece so completely individual, for better or for worse. Yes, well, exactly what Harry said, and added to that, there was an intent to show off the machinery of the theatre. So there's a lot of scenes that are written really especially as excuses to have big scene changes. Uh, 
So it was really, uh, the intent was really to entertain the audience vocally with these greatest hits that we, we talked about, with the wonderful vocality of the singers and with amazing scenic effects. Um, this leads me to my next question, which is for you, Francisco. You have said um, in other interviews that this piece really was meant to be terrific entertainment. What are the qualities in it that make it such a great show? I think you said to me at one point, this is more of a show than showboat. <laughs> so can you develop that idea a little? Well, actually, I was referring to this particular production in, in that ah, case, because, okay. in the comparison of showboat, just because we have more dance numbers than showboat <laughs> and Aida put together. So More than didn't. showboat and Aida put together. <laughs> yes, and... Um, well, yes, as I just said, it was meant to be an entertainment in that sense, in the sense of um, maybe not trying to put across the most wonderful, profound psychological study or, or, or transcendental uh, musical insight into a character's development, but really an entertainment, like we would think of doing a musical now. You know, there's like, how can we entertain the audience at this point? And then what needs to happen to then surprise them here and to make them laugh here? So the, the structure is really one of, uh, as I said, excuses for scenic events, for numbers. And the, the music chosen to be in it and written to be in it are all big hits. And it's one of the pieces that is best known by people who don't really know about Handel. That people most often have at home some recording by some famous singer like Marilyn Horn, for example, singing an aria from Rinaldo. So two or three of the, or more of these arias are actually really well-known pieces. Um, we can call Armida your major league handle debut, I think, Elsa. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, besides, I, I sang, I, I was a mezzo before I turned soprano, so I sang Serse and Ariodante, but that's 12 years ago. Yeah. Um, so what are the most important qualities then about Armida's music that make her very much a departure from the kind of stuff that you're doing right now on stage? I mean, things like you've done... Anna Bolena, uh, the composer in Ariadne, and the leads in Don Carlos, Lohengrin, Il Tabarro, pieces like that. So where does she fit in in relation to the rest of your repertoire? Well, tessitura-wise, she fits in perfectly. Um, the departure from the rest of it, of course, is da capo arias and coloratura, <laughs> which is um, not something that I do every day, but uh, it's been a challenge, and, and dramatically, she's very satisfying. So... Um, Sonia, you've actually sung the title role of Rinaldo, and now you're with us as Gofredo for the first time. What is the relationship between these two characters in the opera? How do they... In the opera, of course, uh, where Gofredo is the, is the father of uh, Almirena, which is uh, Rinaldo's girlfriend, going to be mm, girlfriend, they say, because Gofredo is trying to, mm, to put them apart for all the opera till the end, they, he doesn't want absolutely them to kiss because they want to kiss desperately from the first scene and say, no way, first you get married, no, first you go to battle, to war, and then you can just do, but yeah, there is, the relationship is that, of course, they are pretty, uh, not really all the time for three acts together, but almost all the time together because they have to be united to go against the, the enemy. But um, yeah, I mean, the character, is, is not really so much connected one to each other, but, uh, and also the music. I mean, yeah, Rinaldo sings much more, and much more arias than, than Goffredo does, of course. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, there is a kind of a connection because both have uh, um, this kind of show-off aria, like furore aria. Well, um, Goffredo has one and Rinaldo has, two at least of Furore Aria and uh, of course Rinaldo has this beautiful Lamento Carasposa in the first act which is really great to see and thrilling to sing but Goffredo too got the beautiful aria in the third act I was going to ask uh, I'll ask you about that a little later yeah um, so how does their music differ I mean could clearly you are one person capable of both roles it's basic to, basically can anybody who would sing the role of Rinaldo also think, sing the role of Goffredo yeah why not yes. they're very just, yeah. they're just very yeah. similar not the other way around Ah, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, Harry, this piece comes so early in Handel's career as an opera composer, so were all of the refinements in him that we recognize from later works, were they really already there, 
or did, did all that come later? I mean, how finished, polished a piece is it really? Uh, it's, it, well, I mean, I, I'm a big early Handel fan. I mean, I'm one of the people that actually think that the early stuff is, is some of the best music he ever wrote. And I love all the fact that it's, kind, it's a bit rough and he wasn't trying to prove anything. He was just writing, a young man writing, picking up like a magpie, all these influences from his time in Italy, his time in Hamburg, his time in England, uh, his the French influences. And you just get this incredible kind of lively imagination that's constantly finding new little bits of this and bits of that and taking other people's music even and then rewriting it just slightly to make it even better. A lot of his music was taken from Kaiser, who was the, 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 the general music director in um, Hamburg when Handel was playing the violin there. So um, this thing about it being him becoming more refined and more polished as he got older, it's true. You see maybe some areas um, that earlier in his career... Uh, he might have he might rework later in his career and start just reducing the gestures and reduce, reducing the number of bars. But then look at an aria like La Chiopianga, which he wrote even before this. He wrote it for his opera Almira. He just wrote it as a little slow movement in the overture. It didn't even have any words to it. And yet it's like the most perfect jewel that if you listen to it, you could say, oh, he must have been a very old, experienced man when he wrote this. He wasn't at all. He was a, you know, early in his early 20s. I think what happened as he went doing opera in London was that, yes, he, he adapted to the taste of, of, well, initially the court, and then when he became an impresario for himself, he obviously started writing music and uh, orchestrating the pieces much more simply because he, he was taking all the financial risk on these pieces. So that's how it, I think that's how it changed. And also, as he got older, he did take much more care in making sure that the libretti stood, uh, were, were very strong. And you see lots of evidence of him really having a collaborative relationship with his librettists, which certainly wasn't the case in this piece. At this point in his career, what kind of orchestrator was he? Well, it's incredible. I, I mean, uh, Ronaldo is, is probably the most exotically uh, orchestrated opera of any of the pieces he ever wrote. Exotically how? Well, um, he, I don't think he ever used four trumpets and drums in an aria ever. This is the first and only time he ever did that. Uh, I mean, it's, it's an incredible gesture. You have this opening of Ronaldo, the first 20, 25 minutes, it's basically high voices, all singing wonderful music, but very simple um, dance-type music, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, four trumpets and drums blast out onto the stage, and you get the bass singer, Arganti. I mean, it's an incredible theatrical coup, just by the fact that we haven't heard anything like this before. But also, uh, Almorena's aria Augeletti, the, the birds, of course, this theatre that uh, Francisco's talking about, the Queen's Theatre, which then became the King's Theatre shortly afterwards, among other things, had live birds in it. God knows what that did to, uh, to the audience as they were flying around over a long period of time. But anyway, it was, it was considered very exotic. So he writes a, a bird aria, and he has two recorders uh, playing one little set of birds, and then the very little bird is, is played on a sopranino recorder, which is about that long, and plays an octave or even two octaves higher than the rest of the orchestra. And you have absolute birdsong being played. The end of Act Two, uh, Amida has this phenomenal Vofa Guerra aria, which is basically a harpsichord concerto. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on. When you look and you compare that to something like um, Roralinda that I've just been doing, the orchestra is basically a string orchestra and there's a pair of horns that appear in the third act. That's it. So this is actually very, very brilliantly orchestrated and very imaginatively orchestrated. The Armida aria really is extraordinary with the contribution of the harpsichord. Did he never do anything like that anywhere else that you recall? That uh, with such a huge contribution from the harpsichord in the one aria? No, I've never seen that before. I mean, wow. of course, he used to um, improvise um, organ concertos and things in the oratorios, we know that. But in the operas, I've never come across that. Interesting. Um, Francisco, you've already led us to believe that this, the dramaturgy of this libretto is rather problematic. Um, can you develop that a little bit for us? I mean, are there, are there things that just have you sort of shaking your head in despair? Well, 
No, I mean, it's not that it's really problematic. It's just that it, it, as I said before, it doesn't really develop characters very much. It doesn't really delve into the depths of their emotions and psychology. So you end up with quite a simple story. So I think once, once you accept that it's quite a simple story and, and decide to direct it that way, it's not that problematic. What remains, though, is a few structural problems where maybe events are not clearly explained because they are actually simultaneous, which actually is quite original and interesting. You know, you could have a scene taking place and then the next scene is something that took place at the same time as the previous scene in a, in a different place. So it's just difficult to make that understandable to an audience. Um, and also many things happen, again, or originally to show off the machinery of the theatre, so in a slightly unnecessary way sometimes. So maybe you have a sequence of scenes where a mountain's meant to become a cave that then becomes uh, the lair of a dragon and then disappears and then becomes crystal, etc. And then the, the people who are going through all these landscapes fail and then they have to do it again just so you have another sequence of set changes. So I think the, my idea has been on one side to simplify the story in the good sense of the word, you know, to make it a bit more focused so that everybody can really understand what's, go what's going on. And on the other, to really emphasize the moments that Harry just described, that are the truly exceptional worlds that the music is creating, like the world of the birds that we were talking about before, or to really make the, this aria with the hopscot concerto in it something essential in the piece and something that has a meaning in the piece. Um, also, there may be some characters that are, that are very secondary, like this character called the, 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 the Mago Cristiano that you mentioned before. Um, so what I've tried to do is to, to make him a bit more important. So basically, both sides uh, of the story, both parties in the story, which on one side is Argante, uh, the Arabs on the inside of Jerusalem, and the other Gofredo's people on the outside of Jerusalem, the Christians, each have the help of magic, a different kind of magic. There's black magic on the side of uh, the Arab characters. They have the help of Armida, the sorceress. And on the other side, the Christians have the help of this Christian sorcerer. Um, and that's not very developed in the piece. I mean, really, he just at one point gives them two magic wands and that's that. Whereas I've tried to make him more important and see through uh, and help these characters through once they've gone to get help. So on one side, uh, you have the Arabs who had the help of magic at the beginning, and so the Christians were losing, and then at one point that, that changes, and the Christians have the help of the Mago Cristiano, in, and, and they can win. So I've tried to make that sim more visible in the piece, let's say. But also you have to remember that this piece was incredibly well known. This story was to an 18th century audience in, in London was, 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 was very well known. So in a, in a way, the things that aren't spared wasn't just because it wasn't the libretto wasn't was put together very quickly it was because everybody you know it was understood that we all knew what the story actually was so you'd just be look dipping into little aspects of it and you can play they could play around with it and with references that we simply don't well most audiences nowadays don't have those references so i try to provide new references within the piece that make it all comprehensible Thank you. I want to get back to the characters who are represented in our panel. So, Sonia, as we go through the opera, how do you, what is, what is Gofredo's role in the drama? We know that he's Almirena's father and therefore Rinaldo's future father-in-law, but how does he uh, respond to events and to the other characters on the stage? But he's uh, the positive guy, is the one that wants to accomplish something, that wants to go to war, that for him is important to defeat the bad guys, and he just wants to, uh, to, to get something done. And uh, all the time he tries to be positive, but there is a very moment in which he cannot anymore, when the girl is being kidnapped <laughs> and when uh, Rinaldo falls under the spell of the sirens. Then is the real moment in which is really weak. It just cannot find any hope, any help, any... And, and there is actually the brother that is Eustazio that is just trying to help him to say, no, put yourself together, you have to go through this and we have to do... We have to go and accomplish what we have to do. So this is very interesting. For this reason, I think that there is a small kind of a journey of this guy, the one is, is the big one, and then at one point he fails, and then it, it mean, the hope fails. It doesn't fail, let's say, physically, but anything is, any, I mean, everything is already broken, and he is broken too. And then at one point, with the help of his brother, say, okay, we go, and we just 
fight because this is what we have to do. So. Yeah, Rinaldo has the aria Carasposa expressing his misery. Does Goffredo has a moment of, does he have a miserable aria? Yeah, it's not really, but it's, it's miserable. But uh, I mean, the, it's like, um, yeah, I mean, it feels miserable, but in, in, a, in a warrior way. I don't know, it just he want to get through. He just feel that everything is lost, but he has a um, furore aria, which is very weird because... It's like uh, a panic attack. Yeah, it's like a panic attack. Yeah, exactly. Because it's supposed to be like over over 95. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I'm panicking because everything is lost. And uh, yeah, but this is actually a, the, the most difficult area for Goffredo in the opera. It's, it's the one in which he has to say, well, everything is gone. Uh, there is no hope. What I have to do? I have to go. I have to say, I have to, to go and find my, my daughter. And so it's just panicking, but with a coloratura. And the difference is that Rinaldo is panicking because everything, she's, she's gone. Almirena, she's gone. But she do a beautiful, she do, he does a beautiful lamento. Yeah. There's, there's something very beautiful in the piece, actually, in the structure of the piece. We, we keep saying that it's not very good, but actually, of, of course, <laughs> it actually is very good. No, we wouldn't be doing it still nowadays. But, um, and that is that all the characters seem to think that there's something that they're not really or, or are not really yet. You have Armida, who thinks she's the most wonderful sorceress and can just do anything she wants, who has to learn the tough lesson that actually she can't, and she actually ends up losing her magic. Um, Goffredo thinks, as, as Sonia was saying, he's very positive. He thinks he can just organize the war and go win it, and he realizes he, he can't. He needs other types of help. Eustatio is a, sort of a more intellectual, uh, sort of religious-minded person who, who thinks he has understood things and in, through the piece realizes he hasn't understood anything and needs to learn things from the Mago Cristiano. Uh, Rinaldo thinks you know, he's the, the superhero, but actually ends up a prisoner and needs help from the others to be able to get out of the impasse he's in. Almirena is actually wanting to be more of a warrior herself, but nobody lets her really do that. And she also ends up being a prisoner and has to be rescued by others. It's, it's a, and when Argante, Argante, who's the pure example of hubris, he just shows off, thinks he's just the, the mightiest king on earth, and he's actually a coward. Um, and loses as well. So there's this sense of everybody thinking there's somebody else and actually learning the big lesson that they all need the help of others and they need to realize that they need something, some kind of enlightenment. And this is common to all 18th century operas, really. There's always a sense of initiation, a sense of characters needing to be initiated to a higher version of themselves. And that usually is shown in these pieces very graphically by scenes where they either die and are reborn in a way, like in Julius Caesar, uh, or where they have to sleep for a long time, or where they have to be prisoners, and you do find a version of that in this piece. Two of the characters, Rinaldo and Almirena, do have to become prisoners at one point, and I've added a little reference to that in having all the Christian characters uh, fall asleep at one point, and when they, when they wake up is when they start to really realize the lesson that they've learned. Thank you. Um, you had said when we were um, uh, waiting back, backstage, as it were, that our, you thought Armida was absolutely the character who develops, which leads me to some questions for Elsa. She's really the most complex character in this piece, I would say. Um, well, as our audience knows, I'm always interested in finding out from our singers what impression they want to give to the audience in terms of characterization at their very first appearance on the stage. You make a very grand entrance, at least I've seen it on stage, but I know that musically it's very grand. So in that first aria that marks your entrance, what are you trying to communicate about her? She's very much um, intoxicated with the exuberance of her own verbosity, a little bit. She suffers from a superiority complex and the entrance, the way it's been staged, and uh, the theatric effects, and the costume all contributes to making this entrance speak volumes. She's a sorceress. She's she's uh, she's evil, and she's she's very important in her own head. She spends an awful lot of time in a rage, whether it's at Ronaldo, whether it's at Argante. Um, do you think that, first of all, that the rage is always justified? 
Well, if you were intoxicated with the exuberance of your own verbosity, <laughs> you kind of have to just, you have to put yourself in the shoes of this, of this mindset. And she's angry all the time, yes, and she thinks she's justified. Do I think she's justified? Well, well the one that always perplexes me is, is Volfarguera, which is a very flamboyant aria that ends act two. She's angry at Argante for loving another woman, but she loves another man herself. So it's a, exactly. sort of, it's a double standard that, exactly. she's, that she's created. She's a little bit crazy. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, but she also has in her a vulnerability as well, I would say. How is that expressed? Well, of course, it's expressed in the beautiful uh, act two aria, A Crudel, um, where she realizes that that Rinaldo is not going to reciprocate her love and... Um, it's this just absolutely beautiful lament. I think as beautiful as La Chocchiopiange is, to me this is even more beautiful, a step further, because it has a this great raging da capo, um, I mean B section. Um, yeah, is this the question, is this the answer? Sorry, I lost track. Um, that's how she expresses this emotion, this... Um, She's, she's vulnerable in, in also in Vofarguerra in a way because in, she's presented at that point in a, situ- to, in a situation where she, nothing that she had planned is working out exactly. the way she expected. And she's so furious that she has to make an even bigger show of her, of her power. And she, she goes <laughs> off and into this crazy area with this harpsichord concerto in the middle of it expressing even more of, of the, the intense frustration she has. And that's a show of vulnerability in a way. Now, this opera isn't just about arias. It's also about recitative. Mm-hmm. And Elsa and Sonia, you both have a great deal of recitative to sing Indeed. in this piece. Do you have a particular approach to it so that it has its own musical value and so that the, the feeling communicated is not, let's just get through this so we can get to the aria. What do you make, what do you try to make of this recitative? Well, first the, of all, I'd like to just say that learning recitative, if you don't speak the language, might be the most tedious and painful experience on earth. However, once you have, you know, gone through the turmoil of, of learning and then memorizing, I think re- singing recitative for me is one of the funnest things in the entire world, because this is where you, you know, you, you communicate like dialogue with the other characters, and, and it's usually very action, pithy, yeah. and is it's a lot of information very quickly, and um, you, you can have a lot of fun with them. Yeah, but so. this is also is very important because, for example, we have this um, maestro that is doing a lot of colors in the because actually when the action is developed by the recits, because when you sing an aria, you express an emotion, exactly. and so you have to be. Very, I mean, for me, learning and singing recits, well, I'm Italian, so it's not a big deal for me to, <laughs> to learn them. But it's, uh, well, it depends, anyway. <laughs> and, uh, but it's so, I love, I love really very much, and the words that have been used and the colors, yeah. especially when you have like a continual group in the, in the pit with Maestro also, that just give color to every kind of things and just they reproduce what is, is written in music and what is said with the words. So you can just use words and you can just use colors, as many colors as you want to go through. And then when you arrive at the area, it's like a crescendo. And this is, this is yeah. what I really love. And that's really important. That, that, that The more your question's the wrong way around, I think, because I think the, the arias are earned by the recitative. Exactly. Yeah. I don't think it's a matter of getting through the recits to 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 to, to the aria. I think you have to, it has to build, as Sonia says, to a point where the only thing that can possibly happen at this point is an aria. And if you ever feel that the recit finishes and then you turn the page and go three, four, yeah. it you, you have lost it. It's just deadly. In my experience. Um, I've often been asked to reduce the length of certain recitatives so that we get to the area sooner. And I've always said this is a grave mistake because what happens is you reduce the interest of the scene that is earning the, the area. And very often I have found that actually doing the recit as complete as possible and staging it in the most interesting way makes it seem much shorter because then suddenly you're actually drawing people into the action, into the detail of, of the action. Suddenly the, the area comes as an absolute necessity. Whereas when you cut it down to just perfunctory 
getting through to the next aria sort of text, then it really becomes absolutely tedious. The, the heart, absolutely, of these operas is the recitative and Handel, who's a genius at composing but recitative. Especially in this Rinaldo, because I have seen also some, some, some Handel, a lot of uh, operas, but in this opera, the, the recit before when before is going to be kidnapped by the sirens, mm -hmm. the three of us, uh, uh, um, Goffredo, Stato, Rinaldo, we have this kind of exchange of small information, just building up the, the, the thing that is happening later, and also the recit with uh, Armida before mm -hmm. the duo, this kind of really short phrase is very, it's so incredibly beautifully build it up that you arrive really at the piece, at the duo, or at the end and you feel like, wow, this is really the good hand of this recit or the beginning. And as Elsa said, they're really fun to do because that's yeah. where we all have amazing freedom because yes. we can decide the pacing of them, the color of them, where, to, where the accent is in them. So you can really make yes. them what you want them to be so that the story is, is best told, really. Well, I wanted to ask about that. I mean, how... Harry, how true to the printed page with recitatives does one need to be? I mean, how much freedom is really allowable? Um, well, the, the unlike Monteverdi recitative, where he, he was actually writing, he was literally trying to get the Italian to be heightened by the music. So, so his, his, the rhythms in Monteverdi, you have to really do exactly. And if you do them, it's the most beautiful thing ever. If you should never, ever play around with that. Handel, uh, it's a different kind of recitative, the second recitative. He was, he was bound by a convention that meant that every, everything had to be written in 4-4, four, four, four beats in a bar, in four beats in a measure. Um, which, of course, is totally unnatural because we don't speak any language with four beats in any measure um so he's so in order to get the accents right you can't and I've, i know this because i had to write some recitative sort of handle recitative for a particular production of a handle opera which i won't mention um and it's incredibly hard to do uh and so when we look at it we i mean i always say to singers of course just go with the, the natural italian forget about the bar lines and everything but i do try and observe the relationship of, of lengths of notes, just because I think, as Sonia says, when Handel suddenly writes something in 16th notes and the measure before it was in 8th notes, he must have wanted it faster than the measure before, otherwise he could have written it in 8th as well. But, no, basically, I mean, we speak the text, we do it without the music, we just, we, we, we just talk it. And then, and musically, in, in good recitative, it, it will come and it'll, it should feel, you shouldn't be aware that you're listening to people singing the text. It should be like speech. Um, this brings us to a very important idea, which is the idea of Handel as a psychologist. Uh, where do all of you feel, what do you feel are the arias in this piece that enable him to reveal extraordinary insights of character and how is that accomplished? What are the most revealing arias in terms of who the person actually is and, and really pulling that from the musical line? Well, I would love to say Wolfgang Guerra, which we already mentioned why that is. It's an amazing way to show uh, a, a hidden aspect of, of somebody's psychology. But uh, maybe a surprising one from my point of view is Basta, which is an aria for Argante. Um, Argante, who's a very straightforward character, as I said, very show-offy, you know, I'm very macho, I'm the best sort of character. And he suddenly sings this aria where he, he realizes that he's fallen in love with Almirena and that he doesn't really know how to express that to her. And just the way the aria is written, it has this very sort of out-of-kilter rhythm that shows a certain clumsiness in expressing himself, like, as if he was falling, or tripping over himself trying to express this. And then this incredible orchestration with incredibly lyrical uh, lines and the strings that show that the, the real profoundly lyrical desperation that's underlying what could normally just be a very brutal aria. I find that aria totally amazing every time I hear it. And the way Luca sings it in this production is really shows that up. Um, I'm always very amazed that suddenly there's, there's this, all this world inside this otherwise very simple character. It's a bit like the uh, killer arias in uh, Giulio Cesare. It's like a sort of a military, a military man trying to, trying to express his love for somebody, but he's quite buttoned up, you know, so you, underneath you have this sort of military rhythm that just will not relent. 
but on the top you have these very jagged lines with the violins going from the top of their register to the bottom of the register very quickly and then as Francisco then the bit then the rhythms stop being quite so dotted and they become a bit straighter and more melodic and these are all things which you know we just take for granted but actually they're, they're brilliant in showing many many levels of what's going on in, in, in someone's mind. I wanted to talk about a hugely important element of any Handel Italian opera, which is the Da Capo aria. Uh, it's essential really to all of his stage works. And what's always interesting about them is that they open the door to the artist's own creativity in terms of ornamentation. So Elsa and Sonia, in looking at your Da Capo arias, what sorts of considerations come to your mind in determining what your ornamentation is gonna be and where you're gonna use it and where you're not? Action. So is it worth just explaining what the da capo, or does oh, everyone yes. know this is, this is a form? It's a, it's a form, it comes from a dance form where you have a piece of music which is recognisable as what you call the A section and then another section of music which is slightly different and varied, usually a little bit shorter, and then the, the, the original music comes back and this became used in, uh, for arias. So someone would sing the first section of the aria, a sentence, and then a contrasting second section, and then they, the first bit comes back again, and that was then used as a, in the 18th century as an opportunity to, to sing the same music, but to ornament it, to add um, various little embellishments, maybe change the, 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 tune, the tune a little bit, and uh, it was normally improvised, so artists could show off their ability to, to improvise. Uh, R&B singers do that all the time nowadays, actually. What is it? Yeah, R&B singers, you know, uh, uh, soul singers, Whitney, Whitney Houston, for example, would take a melody that they, you may have heard a million times, but then they would do all these little runs of the, over them and improvise in exactly the same way. Um, so let me speak then to our singers about this. How, how, where did you decide, how did you decide where you wanted to ornament? And well, what？where？and？you？want？you？want？to？start？Harry，Harry，decided？for？me？which？was？very？lovely。no，I？mean，for？me？it's？it？has？absolutely？to？do？with？the？staging？I？mean，you？might？be？running？around？on？stage？thinking
ornamented and or unornamented and then ornament to give our audience an idea of what sort of effect can be made. Sonia can. I've heard her. <laughs> but this is not a coloratura one. No. It doesn't have no. to be colored. But you really hear the difference. Ah. <laughs> now, for example, what, but I actually, I have in mind your idea. No, I'm not kidding. The, 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 because Bofar Guerra, Go I mean, ahead. The, 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 I mean no, no, this is your, I can't, I can't ever, the diva is you. <laughs> no, for example, if, um, yeah, Sorge nel petto, if it goes like, Sorge nel petto, I sing better than this, eh, in a opera. Certo di letto. Then, for example, you can make a variation like, Sorge nel petto. Like, like a pop singing. Oh, I shouldn't say this. <laughs> But, yeah, it's like, um, yeah, something different that you can feel with your voice and you have more freedom. But this is a case in which you can just add some notes. In some other case, you can just change notes, maybe make it longer, or just just make a lot of coloratura. It depends. Like in Bofarguerra, why don't you? Know that? <laughs> uh, Harry, um, she's gonna blow the microphone with a huge voice. Um, in a da capo aria, when a singer does the ornaments, are those ornaments actually uh, duplicated by the orchestra? And do the players add their own ornaments here and there? Uh, well, I, I have a... I, I, we do, in this case, have some... In, in arias, for instance, there are a couple of arias which are basically oboe concertos, or concertos between the oboe and the voice, the, um, a couple of the Almarena arias, where she'll sing a phrase and the solo oboe will immediately uh, im imitate it. So I, my feeling is, of course, for a single player, if, someone, if a soprano ornaments it, then the single player will... Reply. Having said that, if it's going to be a whole violin section of 18 violinists, I don't believe that even in Handel's day, all 18 of them spontaneously copied correctly what a singer did. So uh, I don't really get the violins to do it. But certainly uh, the oboe in a couple of the arias, the trumpet in Orla Tromba, which again is sort of like a duet between the, the Rinaldo and the, and the trumpet. Um, That's about it uh, that, that we, do, we do. And of course, modern orchestras are not used to really doing this anyway. So to a certain extent, we have to prescribe what's going to happen. Now, Francisco, you and I have talked about this before, and I found it was fascinating because I never thought the da capo arias would be fairly straightforward, not to say easy to stage. And you said to me, oh, it's, it's easy to stage da capo arias. So what makes them so? I think they're a gift to directors, actually, because, precisely because of the, the possibility of, of uh, altering the second time you sing the A section. So you, you can have a character express one emotion, and instead of just staying there, they then express the, in the B section a different thought, you know, like a, a new idea that colors that first idea they had. And so when they come back to the first idea, that first idea has changed. And that is the definition of action. Mm. I mean, the, the example I always give is the arias which, where, the, where the character always says to spend, you know... And it's very close. I think Peter Sellers always claimed that it was very close to the way humans actually think in real time. That he said it's not unreasonable to spend five minutes saying, I really, really love this person, I really love this person, and then spending three minutes saying, but they betrayed me. And then going for five more minutes, but I really, really love this person. <laughs> and that the second time you say it, it has a whole new... You're saying the same words, but it's in the context of having just said, they betrayed me. And that that is actually a very common way of, of just the way human beings think through these kinds of so situations. It becomes extremely exciting to stage this because you have all sorts of uh, elements of theatrical grammar To, to pull from, to make this palpable to an audience. You can, for example, in the A section, have somebody totally in the dark, then the B section brings this new thought, and suddenly the whole set opens up when they sing the first one again. So suddenly, the perception the audience has of what they're singing is completely different, because now it's all bathed in light when it started off in total darkness. Or you can suddenly then play with the, the singers and the conductor to find the ornaments that should be used so that they can most appropriately express that change in the context of this production. 
Or uh, I think the best example is a, a show that Harry and I did here, a handle opera called Partenope, where there's this area called Farfaleta, um, where um, Partenope is saying she's the queen of, of Naples and she's very popular. She has all these suitors. And she's saying, oh, it's wonderful, you know. It's like uh, being a flame to all these butterflies, you know, and they come around me and they get burnt. And then what we did with the second time they came around, we made it like she was saying that she realized that she was being a butterfly and that she was getting burnt on them. So the first time she sang it very lightly and like, oh, you know, I'm like, a, it's, a, it's like all these little butterflies around me and it's all really great. Then when she realized that that wasn't such a good thing, she actually cried the, second, the same music the second time around. So the first one sounded like a happy light aria and the second time around it sounded like a sad, uh, totally... Uh, torn up aria and it was exactly the same music but just with the ornamentation with the what's called the effect of the aria changing you end up with real action psychological action running through an aria which doesn't happen when an aria is just one idea which is what happens in our, in in most operatic areas in later centuries um in terms of inspiration there have been some really fascinating sources for Francisco and his design team. This is not going to be in any way a standard view of a first, the world of the First Crusade. So what is your visual alternative, shall we say, to that medieval kind of presentation? Well, for, for me, there were two reasons to get away from the, your, your typical crusade sort of imagery. Uh, the first one is that it's not a very accurate depiction of the crusades in any way. Uh, I mean, the characters keep talking about, they say things like, oh, gods, instead of, oh, God. So they refer to Hades and things. You know. So obviously, you know, there's no, no sort of accurate intent of a historical uh, rendering. It's just an excuse for a certain type of exotic costume you know, for, for the period. Um, so that's one good reason. And the other good reason also is uh, we live in an era where the conflict between Christianity and Islam is an extremely important subject. And if you're going to address that in a, in, a, in a work of art, you have to address that seriously and with really something to say and the means to really say something interesting about that. This opera is not the right uh, tool to discuss this. So I thought it was better to just completely eliminate it from, from the story. So I went for the idea that the Christians are more like adventurers uh, off in, in, a, in a fantasy land trying to obtain... Uh, trying to get past an obstacle and you know like gain access to a city so the inspiration is more things like uh, not visually but in terms of how I tell the story the inspiration is is more like Raiders of the Lost Ark or the Lara Croft movies or Xena Warrior Princess or the uh, Lord of the Rings you know any kind of adventure you know any kind of fantasy magical adventure where the adventurers trying to to reach some kind of holy grail that's on the other side of somewhere guarded by evil characters that they have to conquer. You also have to create in this production alternatives to uh, the kind of thing that you had talked about before, the kinds of effects that are indicated in the libretto, which could be oh, there are black clouds that have to carry off Almirena, there's a rainbow, there's a magic garden, there's a mountain with a castle at the top of it. So how have you decided, have you and your designers decided how to, to deal with all of that? Well, the first thing is the, the incredibly energetic and kinetic uh, feel that Baroque operas have that came from the fact that most of the scene changes were done in view and very fast because of the, simply the, the way the mechanics of the theaters of the period worked where you had all these little wings on the side that could be changed all at once. So you could have all these little wings that represented uh, uh, trees, for example, and just by changing this one for that one, instantly you could suddenly be in an interior of a palace or something. So, you know, nothing was three-dimensional. It was just lots of two-dimensional uh, legs that could change instantly, and borders on top would also change. So you could just go boom and be in a completely different place. Um, uh, and so this gives a you know a, a constant movement and a really e e exciting element to the way that the story progresses visually, um, and stage machinery like you know people appearing on uh, on uh, clouds for example or on big suns or coming out from under underground when they're evil characters, all these all these machinery events 
kept the, 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 the show going in a way that nowadays is very difficult to achieve because it's very, very expensive and we simply don't have all the slaves, if you like, that, to underpay to, <laughs> you also to achieve that kind of thing. So, so we need to find other ways to do it. We also have the competition of cinema. You know, when you go to see a film with amazing special effects and explosions all over the place and people morphing into other people, you can't try and compete with that. So you have to find a much more poeticized, much more um, heightened way of communicating these kind of things that stimulates the audience's imagination, more like you would in children's theater. So I try to find that kind of uh, equivalent uh, way to excite the audience. And one of the things that I use in this production, because I think it's, it, it works very well in the dramaturgy of the, of the show and in the, the style of the music, which Harry mentioned, many of the numbers are based on original dance forms. So I introduced dance the way it's used on, in Broadway, really, the, as really a, a, a way to, you, you, to, to suddenly a number continuing to, con to tell the story, but in a way that is told... Uh, really physically uh, in a way that the rhythm is visible, you know, the energy is visible in the fact that the dancers come in and bring this, that, this element that the set can't bring in, in the conditions we're in nowadays. Ladies, can you give us an idea of what you're going to be wearing in this show? <laughs> Best you. Uh, I think I think my costume is something that could have been worn by David Bowie. It's very um, circa 1980s, crazy, inventive, uh, sort of avant-garde, um, all in shades of not shades, all in the colours of red and black. Um, should I describe in detail? Sure. Uh, the, 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 when you see um, Armida come out of the ground for the first time, she's wearing this elaborate red pleather, shiny coat slash cape that is from top to bottom with this very large um, collar. And um, I think it, it must be quite, quite, you know, a vision to see this red, shiny, big thing because, of course, they put me in heels that... Like that. <laughs> so it makes me very tall. And then also I have these pieces of silver streaks in my hair. So you sort of get a sense of, you know, like a Cruella de Vil type of character. Very over the top, very um, animated. And uh, I wear throughout... So the coats keep interchanging, but then I've got um, this red leather dress, also very long, very slim-fitting... Um, in the yeah for the whole opera and then and, and then I get another coat that has these cutouts of red and black sort of uh, flower detail um, that's interchangeable black on the one side and red on the other side and uh, by the end I look very tattered and disheveled. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Sonia, what are you wearing? I have sideburns and a beard. <laughs> <laughs> She looks like Johnny Depp in Pirates of the Caribbean. I really look like Johnny Depp, and I like myself so much better than this. I'm really thinking to do something. And messy hair, and where I am in black, which I love, with high boots, because I'm by far the shortest of the opera, even if I'm a father of Amelina. Amelina, she's like 10 centimeters taller than me, which is outrageous. She's my daughter. And, um, yeah, I'm black with a black coat and a leather breastplate and nice black trousers and I'm really happy. I really like myself as a man much more as I like myself as a woman. Yeah, it's, so, it's um, good. We can't let a discussion of Handel go by without talking about the unique ability that Harry Bickett has of turning a modern instrument orchestra into a Baroque orchestra. Yes. It's absolutely extraordinary. Uh, so Harry... How do you do it? And are there particular passages in Ronaldo that are especially challenging in that regard? Um, well, it's, uh, no, it's all challenging. But, but the nice thing is that, you know, I've been coming here for about 10 years now and working with these players. And so every time I come back, they, you know, they, they, they look at me slightly less warily. And <laughs> <laughs> at least I hope they do. Um, and, and some of the things that I'm saying don't come as a complete surprise to them. And many of them who played in Hercules last year or who played in, in, in Partenope or who played in the Gluck Orfeo remember that actually, yes, it isn't 
nat- it isn't the most natural way of what they do. And certainly when they're, they're playing Showboat on the other nights <laughs> and Aida, you know, what I'm asking them to do is something very particular. Um, obviously, there are difficulties just because the instruments don't sound the way Handel expected them to sound. Um, for instance, the oboes of Handel's day were wooden oboes, very soft reed. They could they could articulate very quickly, and also they blended incredibly well with the violins. In fact, many of the oboists also played the violin and vice versa. And uh, many of the lines that oboe plays in a Handel opera are, in fact, violin lines. They're not oboe lines at all. The modern oboe, by contrast, is designed to be a solo instrument and to stand out from the violins. So we are suddenly asking the oboe to actually play more like a violin, which is, you know, after their very 10 years of very expensive education at Juilliard, is probably not what they want to hear me say. <laughs> but, they, but equally, they understand that that is the way the music was written, and, and they do brilliantly in that respect. Um, the same thing uh, with the strings. You know, you're playing on... A lot of the instruments that the, that the orchestra are playing on uh, are, of course, 18th-century instruments. I mean, a lot of the violins are 18th-century, except they've been... Um, supercharged, you know, they, uh, they, the necks have been changed, the, the strings are at higher tension, they're metal strings, they're not gut strings, the bows are big, heavy, modern bows designed to play Tchaikovsky as opposed to light bows. Um, you know, it's equivalent, I guess, of a, uh, of a Model T Ford that's had a Ferrari engine put inside it. <laughs> and you're asking, you're asking these people to drive this Model T Ford with a Ferrari engine round little country lanes... It's, it's quite hard to do, it, and it requires a whole mental mindset and a discipline, which is very hard to do when you're playing other music at the same time. Having said that, um, I think they do wonderfully well, and uh, it's a pleasure. They also, once they've heard the singers and they, they, get, they listen to what's coming from the stage, they also get that actually it does sort of make sense, and it makes this music come alive. And the same work has to be done with the dancers, actually. Our, our choreographer, Anna Yepes, is one of the leading specialists in Baroque dance. And the dancers we have here also had to be in Showboat and Aida. So uh, they have to be classical and contemporary dancers, really. But, but for our show, basically, Anna had to give them master classes at the beginning on, on the style, because exactly in the same way as the instruments, you know, they've, they've been taught to do certain things over and over again, that they have to unlearn so that they can really do what was being done before the classical period. And it's very difficult for them. They really, it, 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 some steps that look very simple to them are really, really difficult because it goes against all their reflexes. Um, in conclusion, um, I think it's important to remember that a portion of our audience will not have heard Handel operas before, perhaps, and they may be thinking about Ronaldo and not necessarily sure that it's for them. So I would like to hear from all of you about what you feel Handel gives to an audience that they're just not going to get from anybody else. Modernity. Absolutely. Yeah. Modernity. Modernity and humanity. Yes. And I think what everybody says is just how amazingly modern... The, the people are and the ideas are. Yeah. Actually, because, I don't know, I speak about my country, and it's very much a pity, because sometimes in my country they say, oh, this is really old music, really old, not just ancient, it's just old music. And they say, but look at that, me, the, the libretto, what is going on in the libretto and in the music is more modern than a lot of the 19th century music. Mm. So it's much, it arrives much more to people, really straight here. And it's, that's why, I, I mean, I was just trained in my conservatory in music in the school, Rossini, blah, 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 Donizetti. And then when I heard, and when I sang for the first time, Handel was like, wow, that's it. It's so much easier to say something about you through this kind of music in an aria than to say, for, for my taste, for, for my, I mean, I speak about myself, that just use the 19th century music is totally different and is much more modern. But also yeah. remember, I mean, this is the, Handel was the man that Mozart spent half his life ranging his oratorios. Beethoven, on his deathbed, said he's the best of all of us. Um, nowadays, he's seen as you know the man that wrote um, water music and and fireworks music. But to, to the 18th century and immediately after the hundred years after his life, he was absolutely revered as as, as, the, as the most brilliant composer of his day. Fireworks. <laughs> Vocal fireworks. 
and uh, themes that we're actually more interested in as uh, humans at the moment uh, seem to be very interested by these metaphysical themes. So again, I mentioned all these films like Raiders of the Lost Ark or uh, Lord of the Rings or any of these fantasy adventures. Um, we're really interested in things that tell us stories ab that about like the harmony of nature or the, the, the hidden structures of nature. We're interested in the sacred side of things. We're, look at the New Age movement, how strong it's getting. We're interested in all these things that are not just social, political analysis. We're interested in things that give us an equivalent to what religion maybe is not giving us anymore or something like that. And these operas enable us to really tell stories that go in that direction. And the music itself reveals the structure of the universe in a way that 19th century music is not trying to reveal. It's trying to reveal um, our darker sides or our, our internal problems. Handel is showing us really how the universe functions. And it's very exciting, I think, to the way we think now when we understand that we are individuals that need to go through some kind of uh, uh, growth process, etc., rather than nations who need to conquer and things like this. Well, we have a dress rehearsal tomorrow, so I want to thank our panel very, very much, and thank all of you for being a great audience all season for the Discovery Series. Thank You've been listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the curtain at Lyric Opera of Chicago. For additional interactive content and to order tickets, visit us online at lyricopera.org. Mm -hmm.